Today we tell a story of skill, strength, and scams, booze and brawls. It's the tale of Clarence Whistler. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swerves. Pro wrestling history nerds. Through the power of science, we are together again. I made words into a machine. You pressed a button on a machine and you are listening across time. We're connected. How so? Who knows? Who cares? What am I talking about? Who am I? My name is Nick Gossert. I am a pro wrestling promoter, a pro wrestling booker. But more importantly for today, I am a pro wrestling history nerd. And here's some good news. Here's something exciting, because guess who's feeling better and actually showed up for work? It's Chongo Bronson. How the hell are you, man? Oh, tomorrow's not promised, but yesterday is, and that's why we're here, so we can deep dive into the cool history of professional wrestling. I missed you, nerds. Just don't tell anybody I said that. We'll keep your sentimentalism to ourselves. It's a secret for all the people listening and us talking today. Well, I'm excited to have you back. I'm glad you're feeling better. Glad you're back up on your feet. Glad you got your voice back. Not everyone will agree with that statement, but I'm making it anyway. Yes, you know, I can only milk it so far, darling. But, uh, yes, the Hippodrome Express must go on, and I can't let you replace me with some understudy or something. You gotta light the fire to get back from back in the game, old chap. So in that case, I will take down the the uh, post on the Craigslist wanted ad for a co-host because I guess I'm stuck with you for the time being. So we're going to get into a story that I waited specifically until you got better, until you were back, because this one is wild. This one is crazy because as people who have been listening know, I've been wanting to go back and revisit a lot of the early days of wrestling and the early days of this podcast because, as I've stated before, when we did those early episodes about Muldoon and Strangler. I wasn't so much doing research as I was doing book reports. You know, I would find the books that I could find on the subject. I would take those authors' views as gospel, thinking they knew all, understood all, interpreted all. Um, that was before I really started getting into the newspaper archives myself. So I did find a lot of gaps, a lot of misinterpretations, a lot of bad information. And that doesn't necessarily mean those authors did bad jobs. They just didn't have the tools that we have today. They weren't able to go to newspapers.com or uh, newspaper archives and the New York Times archives and digitally dig through the past for centuries in great detail. They would have to go to the library. They would have to break out the microfiche. They would have to scan for articles because you couldn't word search a physical medium. Uh, you know, that's how, I, I'm sure that's confusing to people who have never known a non-computer lifestyle. What is a library? Who knows? Who cares? But they did the best with what they have. I just have a much deeper toolbox than they did just by virtue of living in 2022. So it's exciting to go back to those pioneer days, those early days, and revisit these stories from a slightly different angle like we're going to do today because you'll recognize a lot of the names, a lot of the matches, a lot of the situations from our very first two episodes about William Muldoon because we're looking at the same era. But this time we're telling the story of Clarence Whistler. So this is like kind of like Pulp Fiction where you like see a scene from one person's perspective and then later you come back around and now there's like a different angle on the same thing where you're seeing it and it's kind of a different story but the same. Exactly. Kind of the, the Rochamon effect, if you will, where, you know, one oh, yes. person's uh, truth is not necessarily wrong. It's just subjectively not another person's truth. So 
as, uh, as we try to search for an objective truth, it's nearly impossible. Does such a thing even exist? That's a question for the philosophers. Or maybe we need a philosophy podcast. Who can say? But we're going to get into this one. And even though I've gotten a lot more information, new information, deeper information, there's still a you know, possibility of error. So if you listen to this and go, hey, wait, jerk off, according to this biography of Muldoon, uh, linking to this article, this is what happened and that's why it happened. And you know what? You may be right. You may be correct. I may be wrong. It's happened once or twice. I hate admitting it, but it has. But we are trying to create the most cohesive narrative that we can put together with the information we have from these times. Yeah, and if, if you get your rocks off by, like, finding, you know, in, inaccuracies in other people's historical research, like, I don't know, Lose your virginity and move out of your mom's basement and get a hobby, bro. Well, to be fair, hating on other historians is one of my primary things, so ah, I will get to those two, the moving out of my mom's basement and losing my virginity, as soon as I possibly can. Uh, weird news for my wife, but, uh, you know, she's got she's to find out sometime. <laughs> so today we talk about the Kansas Cyclone, Clarence Whistler, and why was he called the Kansas Cyclone? I still don't fucking know because he was born in Delphi, Carroll County, Indiana, on January 12th, 1856, or possibly February 24th, or possibly something else altogether. I found conflicting dates on several obituaries and articles. He was the oldest of eight children, born to C.C. Whistler and Leah Catherine Snyder, and was raised on his family farm by his grandmother after his mother died of tuberculosis as one did at the time. Also on this farm was his brother, William Whistler, who was part of the Greeley Arctic Expedition, which was a mission to establish a meteorological observation station in the Canadian Arctic, and we'll talk more about that. But that's another thing I love is when we find these famous wrestlers and they have a sibling that did something absolutely historical on an objective level. It's like, while you were gone, I did a two-parter on Charles E. Parson Davies, Evan Strangler Lewis's manager, whose brother helped foil an assassination plot against Abraham Lincoln. So Whoa. it's weird when big picture history overlaps with the small world of wrestling history in such a specific way. Yeah, who knew that like uh, Whistler's cousin or his brother was on the expedition with Witwicky that found the original Decepticons buried up in the Arctic, man. It's Gadzooks. Yeah, I mean, I was kind of hoping it was they were going to the Antarctic and it was going to be H.P. Lovecraft's The Mountains of Madness, oh, but yeah. I never get my way. No, no. Not, not when it comes to Lovecraft. As a young man, Whistler worked in a foundry where he turned his farm boy strength into metalworking strength. He took up weightlifting or, quote, physical culture and would give demonstrations at local fairs. In a weirdly specific bit of info... I found a description of him as he stood five feet, seven and a half inches in his stockings and tipped the beam at, at 190 pounds. He was most wonderfully built, his physical measurements being chest, 48 inches, neck, 18 inches, waist, 39 inches, biceps, 15 and a half inches, forearms, 13 and a half inches, calf, 16 inches, thigh, 23 and a half inches, so now you are well equipped to make him a suit if you are a tailor. Yeah, totally. That's a that's quite a very, very specific amount of measurements. 
And one thing I did think about is the size of his uh, you know, bicep to forearm ratio, because that is 100% the ratio of a man who worked in a foundry, like having to like bend steel and hit things with a hammer. You know, you had to have, once again, we talk about the farm boy strength and also the working as an, an industrial horrors of the, uh, the late 1800s, where, yeah, you were just a man with no OSHA protection, hammering the shit out of hot iron and hoping that nobody bumps you and you fall into a cauldron of bubbling ore where they don't even get enough of a skeleton for a funeral. That got dark, but hey, that's what working conditions were. And those type of working conditions definitely produce grappling muscles. Because the other thing that when your forearm to bicep ratio is that big, you either probably can hit a baseball really far or you can grab a motherfucker. Yeah, that's that that uh, that working man grip we've talked about before yep. where you don't know terror until your first uh, like judo or jiu-jitsu tournament where you lock up with a guy who you know repairs and moves for refrigerators or water heaters for a living and he gets that lapel of your gi and you realize there's nothing you can do there is no escape because he has the tendon strength of a hundred men and five dogs yeah and your lapel <laughs> you're, yeah. you're about to go ass over tea kettle buddy but yeah, no, the, the, that type of, you know, that's it's a real thing. Farm strength, the, the tendons and, and the connective tissues. It's not like you're bodybuilding or, or building, you know, cosmetic muscle, but you are doing repetitions of hard-ass work at a young age that are just developing, you know, your, your skeletal density and everything that underlines what can turn somebody into a lifelong badass. And badass he was. He was a regional amateur, as was nearly everybody uh, at the time, who went pro in 1878 or possibly 1879, depending on when the story was told and by whom, when he beat Lucian Mark or Louis Mark or Louis Marl in his first match in Omaha, depending again on how the name was pronounced or written in an article. Following that, according to the Wheeling Sunday Register, he beat Texas Bill, a man of prodigious size and strength. I would love to learn more about Texas Bill, but gosh darn it, I simply couldn't find anything. If, any, if there's any big uh, big marks for Texas Bill out there, by all means, send me some clippings. Hey, I want to know about Texas Bill, and what's the hierarchy of guys whose first nickname is Texas? There's like Texas Bill, Texas Red, like... Where, where, if you have the name, in, if Texas is your nickname, you're probably a big motherfucker. I just, I picture Texas Bill coming to the ring, even though there probably wasn't a ring, wearing his hat and his gun belt, you know, the bandito style uh, bullet, uh, you know, X, X thing across his, uh, his chest, having to take it all off. And then right when they announce his name, he fires his guns in the air, Yosemite Sam style while yelling yeehaw. Again, probably not what happened, but it would be a more beautiful world if it did. Dude, if that entrance hasn't been done already, then we need to book that shit. He moved to Kansas City in 1879 and began appearing at variety theater shows as a strongman. Easy work for a man that strong. As near as I can tell, this is when he married Minnie Gallagher, whom he stayed married to for his entire life. In 1879, he had a draw with Andre Cristal and then beat him in a three-hour match and, according to the Boston Post, established his reputation. Cristal took the farm strong boy on tour with him and helped him develop his Greco-Roman skills. And when they said established his reputation, 
I immediately think of Ed Strangler Lewis using that as an insult constantly, telling people to go get a reputation before they could challenge him for the belt. So Andre Cristal, one of those French Greco-Roman guys who came to the country, you know, either A, legitimately loses to this farm uh, strong boy or realizes the earning potential of taking this, this charismatic muscle man on tour with him to make a dollar and puts him over. I'm leaning more towards the latter on that. Yes, you know, I, uh, I, don't, I don't imagine no matter, because the one thing that strength will not overcome is technique. And a savvy veteran who's traveled internationally is probably not going to usually lose to an upstart kid from, from the backwoods. But that said, he might have been like, holy shit, this guy's grabbing me like a friggin', you know, metal clamp. And, and there, there's something to this. And I think you're probably right. He probably saw some earning potential. Yeah, he I like because, yeah, once again, it's like especially when there is no time limit, technique will beat strength over uh, the three hours. Yeah, that's... You know, it's like you watch those early, you know, Gracie fights where it's like, you know, so long as you have unlimited time and it's only one-on-one where his friends will come in and soccer kick you in the head, a pure grappling match will favor the technically proficient over the muscle boy with limited technical uh, prowess over the course of time. But again, he was big, he was a you know just corn-fed American uh, heartland material. He looked like a million bucks. I'm sure Cristal looked at this guy and went, "Ooh boy, we are into money now." Yeah, and he's got he's got the temperament too. That hasn't really come to light in this story yet, but I'm sure it will. I've never met a man named Clarence that wasn't a complete shit-kicking hellraiser. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, no, that yeah, no, that that checks out. Years later, in an interview fluff piece published on May 30th, 1893, Andre Cristal reminisced about his prize student, quote, One evening he strolled into the garden, and seeing Cristal seated on a chair enjoying his afternoon Havana, he laughed and said, Cristal, I guess I'll pick you up with my teeth and take a little walk with you. And suiting the action to his words, he leaned over and grasped the back of the chair between his powerful jaws. He lifted both it and its occupant clear off the ground and walked around a circle with them. Yeah, I don't, um, I'm going to say that that probably didn't happen, but uh, when it comes to pro wrestling, it's a hell of a vignette. Yeah, I just want to see him like, dude, like, I want to see the Iron Sheik break out the clubs, the Iranian clubs, be like, no one can do this. He's like, Hold my beer, bro. Yeah, I mean it's it's yeah the, the just just the laws of physics don't really lean into that one. I'm not saying he didn't have prodigious neck strength to do it. I'm just saying that didn't happen. Yeah, and his dentist probably would have been really pissed if there was such a thing back then. Cristal asked if he had ever wrestled. Oh yes, replied Whistler. That is just what I can do. I've thrown every man about the shops. In fact, I have never yet met a man who could down me. Then you can quit work right now, quietly answered Cristal. I'll give you better money than you are making right here and take you on the road. So yeah, we have an origin story. We have the master meeting the student. You know, the 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 uh, the inversion of the the quiet boy waiting outside the Shaolin temple for weeks and weeks before allowed in. We have a, an old carny going, holy shit, look at this monster. I will give you money. Get on the fucking wagon. We're going to go have some adventures. Yep. He, he, hey, man. It's like, you, you know, he gave him the full, he went full Gandalf. <laughs> he was like, you will leave the Shire, but you will never be the same. Nebraska State Journal, Friday, July 4th, 1879. 
Cristal and Whistler, an exhibition of strength and activity are seldom witnessed in any country. They lament the bad draw of the show, saying that the match, quote, did not draw the crowd to the opera house that such an entertainment is deserving of. We doubt if two such athletes and well-formed men ever appeared before such a slim audience. Well, then that guy would absolutely hate indie wrestling in 2022. The two men gave, quote, an exhibition of their strength in handling an iron bar about six feet in length and weighing 95 pounds. So they're just up there doing a strongman thing, weighing, like, showing, like, because it's like, this wasn't a day where you could go to Gart Sports and buy, like, a, a gigantic weight plate. You had to, like, go to the, you know, go to the factory and say, hey, can I borrow that pry bar? And then we're going to twirl it around as part of a circus act because the world is a weird place. Yeah, that's a that's an odd. Uh, I'm trying to think. That's a, like a bench press bar or like you know a barbell bar, but twice as much weight. That thing just sounds awkward. Yeah, I assume it'd be you'd be doing things kind of like how you would uh, work out with a uh, steel mace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it's totally. probably it's probably like heavier at one end, long handle. You you spin it around over your head, hold it out with one arm, showing that like crazy core strength. That, uh, you know, you get from working on a farm and working in a foundry. And then they stick it into the ground and start doing the pole routine, sliding up. No, just kidding. And it got even wilder. Whistler brought two men from the audience, weighing 150 pounds each, and lifted both off the ground at once. They did various other circus tricks, much to the press and ticket buyer's delight, because what the fuck else do you cheer for in 1879? <laughs> yeah, how did this not sell out again? I've... It's like, he is lifting men. Like, like, he's wrestling them? Like, no, no, he's just grabbing men and lifting them up. Well, you got my nickel, sir. You've got my nickel. Dude, do you know how heavy that stick is that he's holding out? <laughs> the description of the actual match shows the authors and experience with wrestling, so it comes across as almost thirsty. Quote, it was a tussle of strength between two Hercules. At one time, it would seem that the Frenchman must down in the next moment to the wiry Frenchman would have the upper hand of his antagonist. The struggle then became hot, the men grating their teeth and hugging each other like bears and breathing like quarter horses after a race. And if that doesn't make you horny just to hear me read it, you might want to check your pulse. Dude, was this the first time we've ever had evidence of a custom match? <laughs> anyway... Uh, Whistler won the first, Crystal the second, and the third ended with a, quote, a heavy fall, and the Frenchman was on his back, this time his shoulders touching the floor and Whistler on top of him. The umpire, we presume, became so excited over the struggle that he announced the fall and battle to Crystal instead of Whistler, thus closed an exhibition of strength seldom witnessed in this or any other country. So, again, accidental horniness while just trying to be exciting. I just like how he called him the umpire. That just in case you didn't know that this guy didn't know shit about wrestling, it's the umpire count. Well, in in those days, you would see them called the umpire quite often because I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, the, there was like three sports where you needed somebody to keep an eye on things. It's like you don't need a referee for a horse match. Well, I guess unless uh, it's two horses wrestling, which I want to see. Now we've got our next investment. This sounds like some fan fiction from Tina from Bob. <laughs> Back to the Crystal Fluff interview, telling the story of Whistler was, quote, matched against a well-known professional named Murphy from New York for a purse of $50. Whistler was an easy winner, and in the first fall injured the Gothamite so severely that he was permanently disabled and never again appeared on the mattress. 
So, again, you know, just a story he was telling, couldn't find anything to go with it. St- kind of smells of um, the, yeah, you know, I have a girlfriend, but she goes to a different school, so you'll never meet her. Yes, the reverse catfish. <laughs> I, I catfish all my people into thinking I actually have something going on. Cincinnati Daily Star, August 16th, 1879. Announcing a tournament at the Detroit Coliseum for the 18th and 19th, featuring Theobo Bauer, Andre Cristal, Clarence Whistler, and Thomas Murphy, and, quote, the styles to embrace Greco-Roman in color and elbow. Whistler went to the East Coast in 1880 to make his mark in the Greco-Roman metropolis and beat James Quigley of the police department. Everybody always loves a guy beating a cop. I know I do. Especially a cop named Quigley. I made Officer Quigley on the ground go wiggly. He did the piggly wiggly. On November 19th, 1880, the New York Times covers a great wrestling match between Edwin Beebe and Clarence Whistler, which ended in a four and a half hour draw that (laughs) ended at 1 a.m. Quote, the struggle during the last 40 minutes of the contest was terrific, and the excitement among the eight to nine hundred spectators was intense. What would these fans think of a pro wrestling gorilla show? Like, these guys were just fucking transfixed by a four-hour Greco-Roman match that kind of got exciting towards the end. Imagine taking these guys to, like, uh, like like I said, like a PWG or an AEW show, and just, I, I I bet they actually would die. Like, they would have an aneurysm and just drop dead from, the, from, from a thrill that they can't even process. Yeah, they'd probably, like, assume there was some, like, witchcraft at play or something, and they'd probably have to, like, go, like repent for witnessing such cool you know spots but you know they were they it's like that meme with michael j fox like you guys aren't ready for this but your kids are gonna love it (laughs) exactly from the cincinnati commercial on november 27th 1880 a wrestler's challenge clarence whistler has written a letter to the times challenging any man in the world to wrestle with him greco-roman style from 250 to 1000 dollars and I wish I knew the price breakdown on that spread. Was it like an a la carte menu? I do not know. We'll never know, but I am curious. On December 22nd, 1880, Boston Daily Globe, BB versus Whistler, an all-night wrestling at New York, which will probably be continued this evening, English skill matched by American strength and pluck. The match took place at the rink on 3rd Avenue, and yes, in case you were wondering, Mr. William Childs of the Metropolitan Boat Club was selected to act as the referee. We were all asking that question, so it's exciting to finally find out for sure. Yeah, I definitely was feeling like the boat club was not getting its fair stake of representation. The match was a wild back and forth of Whistler's Greco-Roman holds and strength versus BB's wily speed and technique from Catch's Catch Cam. It left them, quote, as red as boiled lobsters. At one point, a man in the crowd stood and shouted, Kill him, Whistler! So they had a hot one. The conditions of the match are that the men will wrestle until 6 o'clock a.m. When should no result be arrived at, a rest until evening will be taken, and the contest then resumed. Imagine the stipulation on that. We're going to wrestle until 6 fucking a.m., and if nobody wins, we'll take naps. And start again. Shit, I better get a pay. It's like, I have so many questions. Like, did the, did the paying audience, like, did their ticket, Is it was it good to come back the next day? Or did was that to sell more tickets? Because, I mean, why else would you do that? 
I, I'm curious if they had to do like a pride style restart like when they would get in the ropes where it's like, <laughs> where, where like, like the next night they're like okay you were on your back guard. yeah you're in half guard you had your hand here no 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 your hand was over there all the referees would stop stop arguing you know you're right there okay and go like it, like did they freeze them take out like the photograph that took like 10 seconds to expose like I again questions I'll never have an answer to but the New York Times article, an exciting wrestling match at the rink, the men stripped to the waist, and at 8.40 they rushed at each other and began to dance about in a lively style. Eureka Daily Sentinel, December 30th, 1880. BB cannot throw Whistler or Whistler BB, though they struggled for hours. Apparently their November 19th match ended in a five-hour draw, so they were trying to avoid a similar outcome. Whistler was directed to stand less on the defensive, and it was agreed that the men should struggle without rest till a fall had been obtained, and that no draw should be declared. Describing the match with gems like, Whistler frequently seized BB by the neck and shook him savagely, but without avail. And, after wrestling over four hours, both agreed to call the match a draw. So, good God, these guys wrestled like a combined... Like, full goddamn day. Like, they wrestled for, like, imagine wrestling two, like, five, four, five-hour draws over the course of two nights. Not only do, how does that affect your body, even if it is a work and you're, you're working, not shooting, that poor fucking audience, or audiences, audience I, whatever we want to call it, holy crap. Like, imagine be like, yeah, I, I bought tickets to this, I bought tickets to the next night. Who won? Nobody, not even the crowd. Yeah, that's a fact. Man, that is just brutal. I mean, it, it, it always makes me wonder, at what point did they start instituting time limits? Because that is just such a commonplace circumstance in these old stories at this era. But nowadays, I mean, even going 60 minutes is pretty much as as high as you will ever go. Oh, yeah, and that has to be something built up to from for months yeah and there, i mean there were in a sense time limits because a lot of cities would be like you have to be done by midnight because of liquor law or if it's a saturday it becomes sunday and we you know you're all supposed to be in church doing whatever you people do in churches um and we did see time limits you know more more or less agreed upon later on because i also wonder if like this time limit draw was more about beating the gambling spread for a draw, it's like when we talk about those early Joe Stetcher versus Ed Stringer Lewis matches where they would go to these audience murdering draws because it was to beat the, the gambling spread. Because it would be, hey, if you know this guy beats this guy, it's this much. If a guy beats this guy, it's this much. But when you draw it all the way out, nobody wins but you know the house. It's a, it's a way to make sure the house always wins. Yeah, it's just controlling the point spread but with more steps. Another from the Crystal Fluff interview claiming that Whistler created a furor in the metropolis by throwing big Martin Quigley three times in 45 minutes. Quigley weighed 260 pounds and in those days was considered all but invincible. Uh, this one definitely feels like a, uh, a work. You know, if a guy's throwing a guy three times in an hour, that's them building up a new star and a new city for a big match. Yeah, totally. Especially a guy who is considered invincible and has that much size on you yeah that's that's a high to, if you got him once i'd believe it but three times and then this leads to bringing up one of our favorite people 
on the December 14th, 1880 Boston Daily Globe. Sports page covers Whistler and William Muldoon agreeing to a match for the championship. I suspect that Whistler's defeat over Quigley caught the attention of Muldoon or was, again, set up to kind of create a gatekeeping storytelling piece to make uh, Quigley, a police officer, get beaten by the farm boy in order to take a shot at Muldoon, who was also a New York City police officer. So it kind of does create what, what I guess you would call a storyline in those days. Yeah, no, that's a, that actually checks out. It makes a lot of sense. Quigley needs backup. <laughs> get in there, Muldoon. <laughs> yeah, I just want to see him get pinned. So somebody else, officer down. Yes, totally. You get arrested for for assault on a cop because you beat him in a match. That would suck. But be worth it, though. New York Times, January 27th, 1881. Muldoon and Whistler. They wrestle till past midnight without a ball. Muldoon looking fatigued. The match took place at the Terrace Garden, soon to be Madison Square Garden, in front of 2,000 spectators. On the line was the championship medal against which Whistler staked $100, its nominal value. Muldoon, who is a police officer, being prohibited from wrestling for money, stakes in the ordinary way. At the time, he was a cop, and they did have certain rules to try to, uh, I know, keep him honest, I would guess, you know, try to keep on amateur athletics. Kind of, I would, I, I'm not sure about the specifics of it, but it does make sense for the day. Muldoon weighed 198 pounds to Whistler's 172 pounds. The January 27th, 1881 edition covered the match in sparse details. The match ended at 4 a.m. that morning at Ugh. Terrace Gardens. After wrestling for seven hours, neither of the contestants was able to gain a fall, and the proprietor of the garden turned off the gas and the match was declared a draw. <laughs> you know a match is good when the owner finally just comes out and turns off the lights and tells everyone to go home. Yeah, really, like, uh, that's just getting it. I mean, you can't say that these audience members weren't getting their money's worth. Well, they're getting their mon money's worth in quantity, probably not in quality. <laughs> totally. It's like, it's like, all right, we got all this food. Is it any good? No, but there's a lot of it. Yes, it's hot and ready. <laughs> January 27th, Baltimore Sun, lamenting the lateness of the Muldoon-Whistler match in New York City because by 11 o'clock, neither man had won a fall. Sports papers had to have their stories in by a certain hour, not 4 a.m. the next goddamn morning. In the fluff interview we mentioned, Cristal claimed that, quote, Muldoon was only spared defeat by the police, who had backed the champion heavily by turning off the gas just as Clarence was about to put the finishing touches on his formidable antagonist. Muldoon was exhausted and couldn't have maintained his feet five minutes longer. So I do love the spinning of the situation, too. It's like, oh, you know, the owner was just like, dude, I've been here for fucking 18 hours. We're done. I'm turning the lights off. Everybody go the fuck home. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. We're done. And, you know, and it was Whistler's people who had the brilliant idea to showbiz it up, to pro wrestling it up with. I bet it was his police pals that turned the gas off to save him from embarrassment because he was about to lose for sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, seven, seven hours. We had him right where we wanted. That's, that next five minutes was all it was going to take to break the camel's back. They had, them, they had them right where they wanted those cops, just, just dirty coppers. The Boston Post on February 21st, 1881, covering the February 19th match featuring Clarence Whistler versus Theobald Bauer, always one of my favorite people to discuss. 
The audience was praised as, quote, very respectable and orderly. Not always the best for a wrestling match, but whatever. The match was firecrackers, but short. Whistler won two falls in under half an hour. The crowd was disappointed in the shortness, but said it was a fair and sharply contested struggle, which is more than could be said of most events of this kind. The Boston Globe on the same date was downright brutal in its assessment of the match. Quote, the wrestling match between Clarence Whistler and Theobode Bauer at Music Hall Saturday evening was not highly satisfactory to the 300 persons present. And I don't know about you, but if somebody called one of my shows not <laughs> not highly satisfactory, I'd be going down there to pick a fight. Oh yeah, we'd, we'd be fighting. For sure, I'd be because I'd be getting some satisfactory one way or another after that. Yeah, it is, it's one of those things where one could see this. It's, it's when it's a short match like that, I do almost want to say it's a shoot because it's short. But it's also Theobod Bauer, who I don't think had a shoot match in his entire fucking life. You know, as we discuss, discussed him in his carny ways back in the, uh, you know, back in a previous series about him. This is a man who the Brooklyn Eagles published a an article specifically saying, because of him, never gamble on wrestling, you morons. So I feel like they were scheduled, they had a match, they were trying to build Whistler up for a rematch against Muldoon. They were trying to set up for something down the road. At, or maybe Bauer just was not in working condition. Maybe he was just like, dude, I had a long one last night. Let's keep this nice and short. Maybe it was to kind of make people have that, like, you never know what's going to happen at a wrestling match. Because if everything is a five-hour draw, you kind of stop losing your, uh, your, your excitement about going to watch the wrestling. Yeah, and maybe Whistler was just like, bro, I need the night off. I've, been, I've had freaking three five to seven hour draws the last three matches. I'm ready for a, uh, I'm ready to coast. But no, I would think that on its face, it sounds like a shoot. But yeah, if he didn't, if he's not a shooter, then what that makes me think is they did that to make it look like a shoot. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where there's so many options. I'm not saying that, uh, Bauer couldn't wrestle for real. I mean, he very clearly could. Everybody could who was competing back in those days. But there's just a lot of little personality X factors and business X factors, yeah. which made me kind of lean away from that. From the Boston Daily Globe, March 7th, 1881, hyping the Edwin BB Clarence Whistler rematch, which was another Greco slash catch slash uh, collar and elbow series, you know, doing the mixed rules they would do back then, with the winner getting $600 subject to the referee's decision. Quote, If that gentleman should decide that the contestants are not doing their level best, he may declare the purse off, and all money taken at the door will be refunded to the spectators. Which is a fun way to let people know this is gonna be a work. You know, that's not, because it's, it's so brilliant marketing-wise to say, if we don't think these guys are doing their best and we think they're trying to pull a fast one, everybody gets their money back. And what that means is those two guys are going to put on one hell of a match for you. Yeah, they are about to pull a fast one, that is for sure. April 1st, 1881, New York Times. A desperate wrestling match at Turn Hall. Two strong men throwing each other about for the entertainment of a large crowd at a stake of $250. Clarence Whistler versus H.M. Dufer the night before. Rules were listed as catch as catch can with jackets. So not sure if it was collar and elbow or some weird hybrid rule set. H.M. Dufer was one of the great collar and elbow men of the era. And many claimed that he was the reason it stayed relevant in the Muldoon Greco-Roman era. The match was described as 
One of the best matches ever seen in the city. There was no hippodrome about it. About 200 persons witnessed the struggle. Gross moment, quote, Whistler was in a very bad condition physically with a boil as large as a chestnut on his forehead and another like it on his elbow. He could not conceal the first from his antagonist, but the second was covered by the sleeve of his canvas jacket, and he took care not to tell Doford that it was there. The description of the match was a first fall where Doofer showed his expertise with the collar and elbow style jacket, throwing and pinning Whistler, whose forehead boil was now bleeding freely. So how fucking disgusting is that? It makes me think of like the CM Punk staff infection story where he's going out there with a gigantic boil on his fucking forehead. And as soon as that got bumped, it blows up. And on a personal note, it makes me remember a jiu-jitsu tournament. I was 18, and I had one of those zits you only get when you are 18. The, the type that would land you in a hospital as an adult, and it was on my back. And I'll always remember it. It was, it was like on my back. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to spin, trying to get an arm bar, trying to work something, trying to sweep. And I remember feeling it pop inside my gi. And I was like, oh, that's that's no good. And, you know, I didn't get the sub and we went to points. And I remember going going back, uh, going, you know, going back to the benches and taking my gi off and it bled through. Oh. And if you know how thick a judo jujitsu gi is, you will understand how much blood that had to be to soak all the way through like that. The human body is gross. I don't recommend having one. Yeah, and I'm... Ugh. I, I can only imagine how how unsanitary the conditions for that are. They're like, just rub some dirt on it there, Cletus, and you'll be just fine. Oh yeah, I mean, think about how gross these mats are. Ugh. Think about how disgusting. Because this isn't this isn't a day where people are like, oh man, you do not want to get a staph infection. These are like. They just, like, you know, kick the donkeys off of the mats they were sleeping on. Yeah. Give them a little bit of a brushing. You know, wipe the poop off of it. Like, this is... I'm, I'm trying not to, like, over-sell it, but this is a time when maybe washing your hands after pooping was a controversial subject. Yeah, I mean, dude, this is just, like... is uh, This is how, like, staph infection was born, probably, or... The, you know, like all of these wrestling diseases that are so commonplace that we have to worry about now on the skin from from the mats. Like, this is where that shit was just like petri dished. So that was the end of the first. Whistler came out for the second, using his brute strength to defend the technical superiority of Dufer, pinning him quote after a savage Greco-Roman effort. Between the rounds, Dufer complained that his hand was numb from having to grip Whistler's jacket. I struggle not to say gi so hard. So he was complaining that like trying to like move Whistler with a collar grip was so impossible that his hand was ruined. And good God, that's got to be some, that's going to be some power. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it, it just shows the other side of the same coin we were talking about with that, like, you know, working man, farm boy strength, you know, the same grip that makes it where you're not going to get that grip off of him. When you grab a guy like that, you feel it's like a, it's like, it's like coiled, you know, steel or something. Some guys just, they don't, they don't feel like they're made of the same stuff. The third was a mirror of the second, putting Whistler up two to one in a best of five contest. 
The fourth saw Whistler and Doofer come out hard and fast, with Doofer practically doing some Lucha Libre acrobatics to attempt to outwork Whistler. They ended up crashing hard on the wooden part of the stage, with Whistler locking and wrenching Doofer's arm. Doofer cried out aloud, Don't break my arm! The referee and umpire clustered over the prostrate men, and Doofer was in such pain that he tried to roll over on his back to relieve the intense pain in his arm. Again, he cried, he's breaking my arm! And the referee asked, do you give up? Like an asshole? <laughs> I think that's great! <laughs> yeah. That, that's, that's how it should have been riffed! Yeah. Yes, yes, I give up, gasped Dufour. I guess there is some, some, some a, a reason for that, as we've seen in, in fights, where a guy's like, ah, 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 and the ref stops the fight, and then he's like, what'd you break up the fight for? I wasn't tapping. Yeah. So there, I, there is a logic to it, but it's just very funny, like, he's breaking my arm. Oh, did you did you want to quit? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess like, nice, pal. <laughs> Doofer went to his dressing room, declaring that his arm was broken, and there was a call for a doctor from the audience, but none responded. I love the, the, is there a doctor in the house? Yeah. I'm a doctor. (laughs) It's Farmer Burns! Oh my god! (laughs) It's Dr. Roller. That would have, goddammit, I wish that was a thing where they would have done that. Is there a doctor in the house? Dr. Roller. I'm a doctor, and he runs in and tackles him. Dude, we need to get a doctor. We need to book a doctor worker. Oh, good God, that needs to happen. They claimed the doctor was summoned and Doofer's arm wasn't broken, just sprained, but would have been broken under Whistler's strong grip if it hadn't been broken up. And that's how you work, brother. Yes, yes, that's right. You're You're lucky the ref pulled me off with a dog on the bone. April 29, 1881, Margaretville Catskill Reporter, covering an exhibition where Whistler went through the military manual with a 130-pound iron bar. I assume that means he was doing, like, the marching formation, like, spins and posts that, uh, you know, the, the soldiers do during their, uh, their, their adorable little practices for army-ing. Uh, you know, with their rifles that, you know, you're, you all picture in your brain what I'm talking about. And he was doing that with a 130-pound iron bar. This man was a fucking mutant. Dude, I wonder how many folding chairs he could pick up after Sunday school to impress the girls. <laughs> Probably a few. He, this is a man who invented the, I'm not making a second trip from the car after going to the grocery store. Seriously? This is the man who invented the 10 grocery bags on each arm and holding the case of soda. So yeah, this, this, guy, this guy was strong. May 8th, the Republic covered the match between Muldoon and Whistler in Pittsburgh, calling it a very fine exhibition lasting about an hour. The first fall was Greco-Roman and won by Muldoon. The second and third were Catch-as-Catch-Can and won by Whistler. A win, but in an exhibition, no title on the line because it was mixed rules, not straight Greco-Roman. So you do have somebody like Muldoon who, I feel once again, this was a wonderful chance for Muldoon, who, even though there would definitely be personality clashes, saw a lot of money to be made with Whistler. So he's like, well, I'm going to put this guy over in circumstances which don't affect my standing as Greco-Roman champion to kind of feel things out. Because once again, he, much like Cristal, went... I'm into money, we're into money, as soon as he saw this man in the ring, or on the platform, or wherever it is they were wrestling. 
And it also, like, it, it helps because, one, he fits into the archetype of, I can take a loss to this guy because it's a different style. And it's like, the, you know, the, the classic, like, non-title match to, to give, the, give the young up-and-coming contender a chance to really look like a world beater without having stakes on the line, you know? The press would exaggerate aspects of the match at every turn. The January 6th, 1882 Cincinnati Enquirer claimed, Whistler's jaw was broken, his ear was nearly torn from his head, and Muldoon was in not exactly a condition to call on the ladies. Oh, damn. <laughs> That's backhanded. And that article was essentially an advertisement for the Muldoon-Whistler combine show that was about to begin. Muldoon saw money in Whistler and took him and Crystal on a national tour, giving wrestling exhibitions, doing carnival-style challenges to the audience, and other athletes would give demonstrations of their abilities, from gymnastics to juggling to getting shot with a fucking cannon. That's right. This is the days when you still had a guy on a carnival who'd get shot with a cannon. It's hard work, but I assume it paid, oh, probably nothing. Yeah, I wonder what the first guy who figured out he could walk away from a cannonball shot... Like, oh, gosh, no, he's like, it's cool. Yeah, like, I assume it was like the Simpsons where uh, Homer found out when they yes. shot the uh, the inflatable pig into his gut. Like, oh, my God, he's dead. He's like, I'm fine. Well, any, any idiot thing you survive can be turned into a money-making scheme. <laughs> you know, there might be a job for you here on the, on the old circuit. On September 15th, 1881, the Cheyenne Weekly Leader advertising $100 to any man who could win a fall from Muldoon, Crystal, or Whistler on their tour. And this is where we get to one of my goddamn favorites. October 19th, 1881. Atlantic Telegraph. The couple of wrestling frauds, the two wrestlers advertised as B.B. and Hoffler, the champion wrestlers of the world, traveling with Barnum Circus are champion frauds. While Muldoon's circus was exhibiting in Detroit, it is said Clarence Whistler and Muldoon, the real champions, gave the frauds a lively turning over. Whistler, who wore a loose suit of clothes over his tight, went to the circus with Muldoon and waited for the alleged wrestlers to come into the ring. Whistler then waltzed into the arena, shed his overalls, and appeared in his tights ready for business. He announced himself and denounced the alleged wrestlers as frauds and challenged them to tackle him then and there. Muldoon, with $500 in his hand, followed and offered to bet two to one that Whistler could throw the two men inside of six minutes. The alleged BB and Hoffler retreated and disappeared into the dressing room and did not again show up. On Friday, when Barnum Circus was in Omaha, one of the wrestlers inquired anxiously of a policeman if Whistler and Muldoon were yet in Omaha, and when told they were, although they were not, the men exhibited considerable uneasiness. He felt easier, however, when a few minutes afterwards another policeman let the cat out of the bag by informing him that they had left town several days earlier. So they're doing barnstorming. These guys are headlining a goddamn circus tour, and they're still barnstorming like a couple of real pricks. They're showing up to another circus to fucking dunk on nerds. Dude, I am I am I'm digging Whistler. I am I'm really into Whistler, and I gotta say. I like his, I like his, uh, he's having a good rub-off effect on, uh, old Muldoon, you know? Yeah. All stick in the mud, and he's going from Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, now he's fucking showing up like Debo to strong-arm the, the mud show. Yeah, because, exactly, because there is, I can't even, like, fathom, outside of just a tiny bit more press, 
What is to be gained with this other than just shoving a nerd in a locker? There is no, you're going to another circus that's not really on the same circuit as yours necessarily to completely discredit and ruin the two wrestlers. They're just trying to make a fucking dollar on the circuit. They're not affecting your business. They're not overlapping with your draw. They went out of their way to fuck with them. <laughs> and that's awesome. I, I, I feel like maybe it was like a bonding experience. Between the two. And I also love that the cops in the other town are like, they're, they're like, the wrestlers are like, have you seen Muldoon and Whistler? And cop one's like, yeah, man, they're waiting for you in the crowd. They're like, oh, <laughs> fuck. And the other cop's like, ah, now we're just fucking with you. Like, like, just, yeah. I'd just, almost be more scared that he was still there. Like, which one of them both? No, that's awesome. He said, you know, this is our town, carnies. St. <laughs> Paul Daily Globe. November 8th, 1881. The Muscular Science. The wrestling match last night between Ross and Whistler. Duncan Ross versus Clarence Whistler in St. Paul the night before, claiming the match, quote, will probably be the last that will be witnessed in St. Paul, and that the miserable fiasco of last evening will serve to deter an audience from attending any future matches that might be announced. In the first place, it was nearly 9 o'clock before the curtain rose upon the athletes, there was a good deal of trouble as to the selection of the judges and referees. Good thing he's never been to a modern indie show for start times. <laughs> he complained that the first fall, under catch rules, was all Whistler attacking and Ross defending. The first fall ending when, quote, Finally, Ross declared that he would give a fall rather than prolong the contest any longer. After a brief struggle, the fall was given to Whistler. And I wonder if that's a literal or old-time wording, saying that, you know, did he literally just be like, fuck it, man, just, you know, finger poke a doom me, let's get this over with, or was it just like, he mercifully, in this badly worked match, just gave up the pin so we could all move on with our day? Yeah, it's it's hard to tell, because, I mean, I kind of get the sense that maybe there's like a bit of both there, but I don't know. Whistler doesn't strike me as like, I don't know, he's just over the town, so he's ready to go. He's not at that point in his career yet where he's that jaded. Yeah, I assume it was just bad chemistry. The second fall was Greco-Roman, and quote, Ross raised the point that according to the rules of the Greco-Roman wrestling, a fall would only count with a three points down. This was disputed, and a newspaper copy of the rules was presented. This Ross refused to accept as final, insisted upon his point. The ref told him the rules stand, Ross demanded the match agreement be brought out, and read that the match was to take place between 8 and midnight, so the rest of the match was off, quote, amid a shower of hisses, because it was 2 past midnight. So he was arguing that he had to do a three-point fall, which was common in Cornish wrestling and Greco-Roman at the time, where it would be two shoulders and a hip, or two hips and a shoulder, and that was used as the argument to put an end to a match after the second fall. Ross donned his coat while the audience hissed and hooted. Ross complained that Whistler shouldn't get the prize money, and the article made this devastating insult. Quote, It was universally considered that he had shown the white feather, and he was denounced generally as lacking pluck and science. Mic drop, motherfucker. The white feather and lacking pluck. Oh, man, if, if somebody said I was lacking pluck... Somebody would be dead and I'd be in jail. I'm just saying. They're about to catch a plucker cut real quick. Ooh, <laughs> boy. Oh, oh, I see what you did there. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's always funny when you you see these matches. And you would see this constantly. The, we're going to cook up a reason for it to be a draw. And nine times out of ten, all it did was piss everybody off. 
That was a great. That was a great use of like, let's go to the rule book. Oh wait, we're out of time. Yeah, it was. It was literally. I mean, it's you know, like it's like the Raw before Mania. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like the SmackDown before Summer SummerSlam, where it's like we're gonna have a preview of the big match, but we're gonna give somebody some some heat by having them you know stop the match and pull out the contract and point out some minutia and fuck you, I'm going home. You want to see this match happen? You gotta buy a pay per view or whatever. Yeah. And. But you're not. You don't have a pay per view. You're in a fucking theater in a town in the in the 1800s. It's completely insane to pull a carny scheme like this to preserve a winning streak or a reputation. Meanwhile, all you did was just burn that town for the next poor assholes who try to put on a match. I think I thought that was some pretty good heel work. He's like, yeah, it's past midnight. I'm putting my coat. <laughs> and now we come to another of my favorites. It really sets the stage for what their relationship would be and who Whistler would become as a person, perhaps who he already was, but just wasn't well reported. The New York Sun, March 3rd, 1882. A fight of giants. Muldoon and Whistler come to blows on stage. You already know this is going to be good. The Muldoon and Whistler combination of wrestlers and athletes exhibition, there's a mouthful, last evening. And regular program was carried out, but besides, there was an old-fashioned game of fisticuffs. At their Chicago appearance, Whistler and Crystal were doing an exhibition match with Muldoon as referee. Whistler was drunk, angry about something, and was roughing the hell out of Crystal. Muldoon told him to ease up, but Whistler kept at it. So he decided to break it up himself, calling the cannonball performer to come help get Crystal out of there. He grabbed Whistler and held him down with a knee on his neck. Whistler managed to get out, and they started throwing punches until Muldoon could drag him backstage. Muldoon came out and apologized for the scene, telling the audience that Whistler had been drinking. <laughs> what an angle. Is this like proto-Austin Hart referee Ken Shamrock tur double turn? I, I mean, either that or... Whistler really was just drunk as shit and just started taking liberties on the Frenchie. Yeah, so it's like apparently you know, him and Crystal were, were doing the match and he was just shit-faced and was just cranking too hard because he was in a bad mood and a mean drunk. Muldoon tells him to knock it off. He tells Muldoon to go fuck himself. Muldoon tried pulling him off. And I also found other versions of the story where Muldoon was trying to get his jacket off. He like essentially got hockey to where, you know, hockey fight situation where Whistler pulled the shirt over his head and was landing punches. And they dragged him backstage with the help from the cannonball performer. All hell breaks loose. And then Muldoon with his fucking, you know, like a bloody nose comes out and is like, sorry about that, guys. And, you know, there is a carny part of me that goes, well, that would be a great little work to uh, yeah. really get some get some press because you know maybe the tour was you know t was respectable, but they needed to wild it up a little bit for sales. But that doesn't really fit Muldoon's personality because he was just like, I'm gonna do things above boards or under the appearance of respectability and above boards to my own detriment. So I feel like this was legitimate, where this was a legitimate all shit all, all shit breaks loose. Um, and yeah, so I mean, it's just, it's just a wild situation between a man who was just trying to do business and a man who could do business so long as a bottle wasn't in front of him. And I also think this was the genesis of a crazy story I found in a obituary for Evan the Strangler Lewis in the Reno Gazette Journal on November 24th, 1919, claiming that Whistler and Lewis were the first two men of the 1880s who didn't take orders from Muldoon. Quote, 
Whistler was the first to command Muldoon's attention. The demon wrestler threw down the gauntlet and dared Muldoon to take it up. The Broadway copper not only accepted the dare, but set sail for St. Louis where the scene for their first meeting were laid. In the dressing room that night, Muldoon saw Whistler draw a six-shooter from one pocket and a long bowie from the other and hand them to a friend. At the same moment, Whistler whispered aloud enough for Muldoon to hear, If this Broadway copper gets too fresh, cut his heart out while I'm chopping off his head. When, Mul <laughs> when Muldoon made a move for the door, Whistler's friends drew a bead on him and muttered, The next thing you know, there'll be a dead Broadway copper around here. So, yes, this didn't happen. This certainly didn't happen, but it shows how reputations morph over the years and myths grow around them. So this is a situation where, uh, you know, it's like what I talked about at the start of the show. The news writers of 1919 didn't have newspaper archives to dig through to find out what the real story is. They've heard this insane game of telephone almost 40 years at that point until they finally hear this story that went from, oh, he was drunk and being an asshole and he got pulled off stage and they got into a fight. And the relationship between Whistler and Muldoon would never be good. It was always going to be something or another, as you'll hear in part two. That's right. There's going to be a part two of this bad boy. But over the decades, that turned from drunken fight into a gun and a bowie knife and a threat of murder and dismemberment. And that's what I love about pro wrestling right there. Yeah, that was awesome. I mean, that was a, that was a proper uh, terroristic threat on an officer of the law. Yeah, it's like, yeah, just the barring the exit, like, next thing you know, there's going to be a dead cop around here. It's like, holy fucking shit. That's like, like, yeah, that's, that's some serious, serious shit to get into. But, you know, again, that's the problem of wrestling history. It's kind of like, you know, when I would reference the Barnums of Bounce, the Fall Guys, um... Marcus Griffith's book when we were talking about the Gold Dust Trio, where he wrote a book about the 1920s in the 1930s. And at that point, the stories had turned into legends. The legends had turned into crazier legends. So there was no good way to project objective history under those circumstances because they weren't going to be like, well, according to the 1882 paper over here, no, they've heard that story from somebody who heard a story from somebody who heard a story and every single time those stories were changed, I guarantee you, alcoholism and trying to look rad to your friends was involved. So As it yeah, be. yeah. So that's you know, and that's fine. That's pro wrestling. That's what exactly. it's all about. But yeah, that's a that's a great place I think for us to put a pin in things. Uh, ooh, a pin. Uh, <laughs> hey. We're getting some wrestling puns around here. But yeah, we're gonna call it good for today because this story gets crazier. I don't know how. But it fucking does. So we're going to conclude the part one of the Clarence Whistler story with that crazy bit there. We're going to get back to you next time. But in the meantime, I want you to make sure you're liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter and Instagram. See the crazy articles and things that I find and post there. I love to share my old-timey research. How are you liking this story so far? Oh, this is awesome. And if any of you nerds Give anything less than a five-star review. Uh, Broadway Copper ain't gonna be the only dead corpse we gotta cut the heart off of and take the hat, take the head off of in the in the locker room to set up the hippodrome. You know what I'm saying? I think I do, and I hope nobody calls the FBI. So Clarence Whistler Part One done. Clarence Whistler Part Two coming soon. I'll talk to you next time for Chongo Bronson. I'm Nick Gossert. Enjoy the rest of the day, you. Peace out, nerds. Mm -hmm.